Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here once again. We thank you because it is by your mercy that we are here, that we have not been consumed. Be thou exalted in the name of Jesus. Father, I ask that in all that will be said today, may your name and your name alone be glorified in the name of Jesus. Father, help us, teach us by yourself. Be with us as these words come forth. That Lord, I will not teach in the flesh. But Father, I will teach by the aid of your spirits in the name of Jesus. Your children will understand and your children shall be blessed and refreshed in the name of Jesus. For it is in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Amen. So, today we're going to be looking at the final part of our series of exploring Joshua. It feels interesting because I started the series with the very first one that we did, which is be strong, be courageous. And today I will be closing it out with the topic, the heart, then the lips. Our text is taken from the book of Joshua, chapter 24. This is the very final chapter of the book. And I'm just going to go through it rather quickly to just read so that we get a backdrop or an understanding of what it is we're going to be discussing. Um, I read Joshua 24, starting from verse 1. It says, And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called the elders of Israel and, and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and they presented themselves before God and Joshua said unto all the people thus saith the Lord God of Israel your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in the old time even Terah the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor and they served other gods and I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau and I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses also and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to what, according to that which I did among them. And afterwards I brought you out and I brought your fathers out of Egypt and ye came unto the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt, and ye dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side of Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand that ye might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. And I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore, he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan and came unto Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you. And the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hevites and the Gilgashites and the Hevites and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornets before you, which drave them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with the sword, not with thy sword, not with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye did not build, 
and ye dwell in them of the vineyards and the olive yards which ye planted not, do ye eat. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our gods, he, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from us, from before us, all the people, even the Amorites, which dwelt in the land. Therefore we would also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. After, after that he hath done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your hearts unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and took a great stone, and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it had heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart every man unto his inheritance. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun and the servant of the Lord died, being an hundred and ten years old. And he buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath, Sarah, which is in the mouth Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground, which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, and of the father of Shechem, for an hundred pieces of silver, and it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in a hill that pertains to Phinehas' son, which was given him in Mount Ephraim. Amen. That was a bit of a long read. That was 33 verses long, but I believe every single word there was important. Now, we could divide what we have read here into give or take two distinct parts. We have a part from verse 1 to verse 13, and then we have from verse 14 to about the end, thereabouts, that we can talk about. And it's important for us to look at that very first part. Because in this part, this was Joshua's dying declaration, should I say, to the children of Israel. After this, he died, as we read there. And at this point, almost like Samuel, 
when Samuel was old and essentially stood before the children of Israel and said, okay, oh, I'm going, oh, this is, this is what it is, this is what the Lord has said, this is this, this is that, this is that. And the Lord spoke through Joshua. And when he spoke to Joshua, he said a couple of things to the children of Israel. So the first theme that we are going to look at is we're going to look at the theme of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. You see, this first, this passage that we've looked at, chapter 24, if we start off, we will see God talking about his faithfulness towards the children of Israel. He, or in a sense, we can call it his election. He talked about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these forefathers who had come and gone for the children of Israel. And he talked about his faithfulness and his goodness towards them. This is interesting because when you think of the children of Israel, a lot of times there was this feeling of, oh, we are the chosen, you know, we are the chosen nation. It's us. We've been given an inheritance. Kind of how, you know, those children of rich men usually used to feel very good with themselves. That, oh, we are the owners of the inheritance. We are this, we are that, we are that, we are this. But God made a very important point there. He said that the, his servants, people like Abraham and so on, that he picked them out of the land of Paris. He talked about how he brought up Abraham, who was a son of Terah and all of that. And this is fascinating because if you look at scripture, the way Abraham is introduced to the story is very interesting. In fact, you see it throughout the Bible in that the Bible is never dramatic when it's introducing someone. The person just comes and the person is there. The reason is very simple because ultimately the narrative is about God, not about them. The Bible tells us from the very beginning, it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So if I was writing a bit of prose, you know, I would generally start the story with my protagonist. I'll say, oh, this man, his name is Charles. He had red hair. This is what he did and everything. The very first thing that we got was an introduction to God's power. That's the very first thing we get from the Bible. It tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Which means that in that moment, it was telling us that, okay, well, this God is all because he was powerful enough to do this thing. And everybody else after that, so the side character, including Abraham. And he was talking about the fact that when Abraham came, it was chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. That was the first time we saw Abraham. And when Abraham came on the scene, it wasn't as if there was any prior. All we had was that, and God said to Abraham, more or less, there was no other entry. There was no, oh, and there was a man called Abraham who was mighty and powerful, who was incredible. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says there, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of your country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. Before that, we had no idea who he was. And what was so important here was that God was pointing out that even this Abraham that everyone is talking about as their progenitor was not a Jew at the beginning. He was also a pagan worshipping individual and that God lifted him up. And when God lifted him up, it wasn't because Abraham had done anything incredible. It wasn't as if they said, and there was a man named Abraham in the land of Ur who was a great and mighty man of God, who loved the Lord with all of his heart and 
eschewed all the pagan gods that his fathers had built. Nothing of the sorts. She said, and God called Abraham, the end. And Abraham will to his credits. So this shows that the election of Israel as the nation of God was not because of merit, was not because of anything that they had done. Israel did not deserve any of the things that God had done for them. It was simply the mercy of God. It's something we've been learning recently and something that sometimes we find difficult to wrap our heads around. But if we look at that, even in the life of the believer today, our salvation is not based on anything that we have done. It's not because we have done this great and mighty thing for God or we had shown one great affinity towards God's words and then he said that, ah, okay, oh, because this guy is so good, let me just, let me give him eternal life. Abraham was just an idol worshiper like everybody else. When God spoke to him, we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. That might have been the very first time he had ever heard from God. He might never have heard from God before that. He might not have had any relationship with God before that. We don't know. God just called him because of his mercy. And as we see the progression of what God was saying to the children of Israel, we see something very interesting, which is that at no point did God mention Israel's sin. Do you realize that? Like all the time he said, I led you through the wilderness. I didn't, he didn't say, and you were stubborn-necked, and you were stiff-necked against me, and you hardened your heart against me. No. Why was that? Because that was not the point. God wasn't speaking as a... You know all those... You might have seen this before. You, know, you might have seen a video whereby a guy is complaining about a girl. Or a girl is complaining about a guy. One or two or the other. Oh my God, I gave everything to this guy. Ah... I dropped out of school. I gave him the money that my father gave to me just so he could start his business. Look at all these great things that I did for him. And now he decides to push me to the side just because he saw another fine girl like that. What does the girl even have, Seth? I need to see, to see, to see, to see. You might have seen things like that, right? You've seen videos like that. People are complaining. Or sometimes it's on the other side where the guy is like, ah, give this guy, I paid. I paid a transport money. I, I, I gave her plane tickets to come to X and Y place and then she just went and was chasing some other person. You've heard things like that before. Why are those people complaining? They're complaining based on what they did. And more or less, they're explaining the fact that what they did was based on either some kind of return or some kind of whatever, as the case may be. This was not the same with God. God was not whining. He was essentially just stating that this is what I have done for you. And I chose you because... It was my will. Nothing more. Nothing more. God's faithfulness was not done in anticipation of payback. In the same way that as his election of Israel was not done with the anticipation that Israel would do some great thing for him. This does not mean he did not have standards. It does not mean he does not have requirements of them. But it was not the basis of his picking them. And so they had victory upon victory. They won against the Amorites. 
the one against the Perizzites and the Canaanites and all of these people. But it wasn't by their strength. It wasn't by the power of their bulls or the power of their chariots. It was by the grace of God. In our lives today, we must also realize and recognize the fact that God chose us and it was by his mercy. That we are here is by his mercy. It is not because we have any inherent good. It is not because we have any incredible thing. As you read the passage, you read in, um, in verse 4, it says, And I gave unto Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, and I gave unto Esau, Mount Seir, to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis, it tells us that Esau was a profane man. He was a profane man that was giving everybody trouble. Esau was, Esau was a stressful character to deal with. I mean, this was a man that sold his best rights for you know, the equivalent of Ewagwen. Of Ewagwen. Sold his best rights, not send, sold his best rights. Said that he married women anyhow. In fact, he even married women because he knew that this one will prepare my parents. Let me go ahead, let me do it. But what does the Bible say? It says that I gave him the Mount Seir as an inheritance. This is the same Esau that the Bible says that uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Shows again, it wasn't because Esau did anything. It was because of just God's mercy and his grace that he gave unto him that Mount Seir. And in our lives today, we find all of those things, skills, talents, abilities that God has given to us by his great mercy. Nothing else. It doesn't make us special. It should make us grateful. We are not so special. And when I say we are not so special, I don't mean that God doesn't love us or we are not the apple of his eye. All of this is true. But we are not all that. We are not all that. We are not the main characters of this story. It's God. It's God. And he was stating the same thing for the Israelites here. That I'm the one that did all of these things. It's not you. When you read the story of the Israelites, if you read it from a particular angle, from a particular slant, you can, you can place the role of victim on the Israelites. You know, you read that, ah, these people... They suffered slavery for 400 years in a land that was strange to them. They now came out. When they came out, they now started walking in the desert, hungry, thirsty, with a leader that was leading them, that was just trying to get them to a place. And then they just there roaming about for 40 years, just going through it, really going through it. And on every side, everybody hated them. The Amorites hated them. Everybody hated them. The Moabites, they didn't let them pass. Look at all those people, wickedness. Ah, now, finally, they are going to enter Canaan. Ah, their reward. After they've suffered, ah, they deserve this. No! It's God's mercy. Because in that situation, Israel are the main characters. It's because of their perseverance. No, it wasn't. If anything, it was their stubbornness that kept them for as long as they were out there. 
And Israel, like, their brand of stubbornness is, is incredible. It's incredible. And in our lives, we have the same thing here. So what are some of the things we can learn from this? What are some of the things that we can pick up from this? It's some of the things we already talked about. But the first thing we can learn about is that we must recognize the grace of God upon our lives. We cannot fail to realize the fact that God has been merciful to us. It's God's grace that has gotten us this far. Too often, I read, I've, I've seen people tell stories about how, oh, God was not there for them. They went through a traumatic incident. This happened, that happened. And it's a see, it's a see, it's a see. That they're not, they not one of God's favorites. That God, God does not send them. And I empathize with what they've gone through. Life is hard. That's true. We say it all the time. Life is not, it's not easy. It's not a bed of roses. However, we must also not fail to recognize the mercies of God upon our lives. Do you think the Israelites did not have things to complain about? They did. In fact, they're quite vocal about it. Although you could say they are, some of their problems felt like first world problems, you know. Because things like, eh, we've not eaten meat. <laughs> we want meat, we've not eaten meat. Hey, but you're eating. There's manna. Yeah, I'm tired of manna. Give me meat. Oh, you brought us out here to die. We don't have water. What's all this? Give us water. Give us water. Things like that. But it's not as if the Israelites did not face challenges. They did. Like I mentioned earlier, everybody all around hated them. Because of their disobedience, they could not enter the land of promise. They meandered about. They went through all sorts of things. Sure. All well and good. But ultimately, reading what this passage, what God has said, it shows you that if we must turn our point of view, if we stare at ourselves too much, it is easy for us to define our lives for, for uh, define our lives by what we missed out on, what we didn't get, what God did not drop in our laps, rather than seeing the mercies of God in taking us through. Certain periods that we might not have even thought about, or even the unseen dangers. I mean, in the case of Balaam, it's not as if the Israelites were watching, all of them saw Balaam and they were standing somewhere while Balaam was there about to curse them. Balaam went to a mountain somewhere. It's very possible that a very large swath of Israelites did not even know Balaam was coming to curse them. Contrast that to how many dangers that. We have not fallen into because of the mercy of God. We must recognize the grace of God in our lives. He also teaches us that God required no payback or payments to save us. Is what we said earlier. He didn't require any of that. It's not a requirement. It's not a requirement. Because sometimes we like to think about it. We like to think about it that, oh, okay, so... Jesus saved us so that we can serve him. No. Because some people think like that. Oh, okay. This is a transaction. So it's like, uh, I remember when I watched Aladdin. Sorry, I'm old. When I watched the Aladdin cartoon the first time, there was a scene where the Cave of Wonders 
was collapsing. I don't know. How, how many people have seen Aladdin? Okay. Okay, a few people at least. So maybe you might understand. The Cave of Wonders was collapsing and Aladdin managed to get out and he was stretching his hand and then the old man was genuinely like, save me, save me. And the old man was like, give me the lamp. Give me the lamp. And the guy was like, ah. Okay, fine, fine. But save me. Mm-mm, give me the lamp. Okay, fine. Well, yeah, here's the lamp. Take. And the guy grabbed the lamp and was jumping up and down and then, you know, wanted to... He ended up pushing Aladdin down. But sometimes, some people think of Jesus saving us in that, in that light. That, you know, we're like this. Ah, save me from eternal damnation. Save me. Save me. I know. Save, save me, Lord. Save me. And then, he now saves you. And I'm like, okay, hey, we are, I'll save you now. We are start saving me. No, he wasn't looking for payback. So it's because of his love. And when we serve him, we serve him out of gratitude. Not because there's this debt that we have to pay, because we can't. How do you do it? And the other thing it teaches us is that we must be humbled by this realization. This realization is meant to humble us. It's meant to bring us to a point where we're like, ah, this God this God. This God. Because we must be incredibly humbled. We must be incredibly humbled. And I think that's one of the things, it's one of the overlooked aspects of the doctrine of election sometimes when we think about it. So often our minds are on how about those that don't make it rather than I am grateful, I'm humbled that I am saved by the grace of God, by his grace, that he gave me the chance to be able to come into his kingdom by his mercy. Moving on, what is it that God asks for in return? And I guess we must be careful when I say this. And when you say, what does he ask for in return? I'm not saying that there's this payback thing going on. But rather, what are the expectations now that we are in this life? And it's simple. The one thing is sincere worship. Sincere worship. That's what God is looking for. Sincere worship. If you find, if you read verse 14 of the passage, read, it says... Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of, e- of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. We have a similar passage in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 12. Which also harbors the same sentiment. It says, and now, Israel, what does the, the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. The same thing is said in 1 Samuel 12, 24. You know, talking about essentially only serve the Lord. Only serve the Lord. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. Consider how great things he had done for you. Only that you serve the Lord. That's the requirement. Service to God. Because service will cover everything else. If we serve with sincerity of heart. With sincerity of heart. 
If we serve with sincerity of heart, we would walk right before God. And there are some people who think about this and think to themselves that this service to God isn't too steep a price to pay. If you go back to what we are talking about, like, isn't it too steep a price to pay when God asks us to serve him with all our heart? And the answer to that is no. It's not too steep a price. Why? Because ultimately, the Christian life is hard. But the Christian life is also the easiest thing ever. When they say my yoke is easy and my burden light, sometimes we need to think about what that passage means. It means that there is a burden, yes. But that burden is light. Why is it light? It's light because when you think about it, ultimately, the Christian life is not that deep. And when I say the Christian life is not that deep, I don't mean that it's not important. I'm not saying that it's not um, deep in the sense of what it is that we are called to do or we are asked to do. What I mean by it's not that deep is the sense that ultimately, our problems regarding Christianity all from temporary troubles. It stems from people's reaction to who we are rather than the religion itself. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That the Christian life can only be termed as difficult because of the presence of temptations and the presence of persecution and the presence of the flesh. Which is why we eagerly await heavenly homes whereby we don't have to deal with these things anymore. We don't have to deal with these things anymore. Next thing I want to talk about is the second half, which I'll run through rather quickly, which is the choice. The choice that the children of Israel had to make. And that choice was to follow God or to follow the gods of their ancestors. There were three sets of gods that were talked about here. They're the gods that were from beyond the flood, which is the ones that Abraham them served. There were those sets. There's gods of Egypt. Because the Israelites too. What do you think they do? You think all the time they were there as slaves, all of them were like, oh, we shall follow the Lord. It's only the Lord we are following. No, they, they were worshipping Ra and Isis and uh, Emotep and all the other gods that existed then. And finally, the gods that they talked about are the Amorite gods, where they were. But as we write here, that the choice to follow God was not something to be taken lightly, which is where the crux of our topic comes from, or the title of our topic comes from, which is that it's a decision from the heart that then proceeds from the lips, as we will see with the children of Israel, who... When this choice was put before them, Joshua said that for him, for him and his house, he will serve the Lord. That they will serve the Lord. And that's interesting because what Joshua was saying here was that our choices or the choice that we make for God is not... The choice that we make for God shouldn't impact only us, 
but should also impact those who are around us, including our families. Because Joshua did not say, as for me, I will follow God. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's why we talk about how much our decision must influence our families. When we decide to serve the Lord, there is a certain responsibility upon us to ensure that we are also dragging our family with us into that. And you see that it was something that followed through. Of course, everyone has their choice to make. But even with the likes of Jacob, Jacob wanted his sons to follow the Lord. Because if you read in the book of Genesis chapter 35 from verse 1 to 4, he told all of them that all of you put away your gods from you. We are following the Lord. And another part of Joshua's declaration that was so important was the fact that he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Which meant that he was more than ready to do it alone. So he was saying that, you people, I've given you the choice, so you people can now decide to do what it is that you want to do. But it's me. I'm going to serve God. It talks about the narrowness of the way. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, it talks about how the way to death is wide. Many are going to be on it. The road to salvation is narrow. Only few shall find it. This Christian life is going to get lonely sometimes. Because what you are doing is not popular. And it will never be. There is never going to be a time where true Christianity is the popular religion in the world. It's never going to happen. If you are harboring hopes of some golden age of Christianity, it's not going to happen. The word of the Lord is spread, though. People would be saved. People would be called on to Christ. But it's never going to be popular. Never. So we should realize that not everyone is going to make that choice. No, not everyone is going to make the choice to follow Jesus. But we must. And the choices that we make is not simply just a choice to follow God, but a daily choice to continue to stay the course. Finally, I want to talk about what came after the people's response. The people responded positively. They talked about how they will follow the Lord. They will follow the Lord, they will follow the Lord, they will follow the Lord. That's, that was good. But Joshua warned them. He said, you can't serve the Lord. And in that, we can pick something from that, which is that our service to God is not by our power. Israel could not serve the Lord by their strength. But if there's anything that the people did that I believe was very good, was that they answered with thoughtfulness. When they responded, their response was measured. It wasn't a, yes, we shall serve the Lord. There was reason behind it. Which tells us that our choices should not be just because. Because that's the thing about sincerity. When we follow with sincerity, if our motives are not sincere motives, they don't last. So if we are serving God simply because we're in a bad time, or if we're serving God simply because we're in a good time, 
You're like, ah, all these amazing things are happening to us, so let's serve the Lord. Though. Or, oh, I've been hit with this difficult time. Everybody is kicking my behind right now. Life is really dealing with me. I will serve the Lord. Those don't last. When the Israelites answered, they answered with an understanding that we can see what God has done over the ages. And it is based on that that we are following him. Because we are appreciative of what he has done. He will be our God. And I think it shows a very interesting dynamic between the heart and the lips. Because it was a, it is a coalescence, shall I say, of the Israelites' collective condition, heart condition, where they had accepted that they would follow this God that then burst out of their mouth into their decision that they made. Because if we turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, verse 21, we see another instance where the children of Israel were given a choice. But this did not go the same way. 1 Kings 18, 21. This was when Elijah was up against the prophets of Baal. And the Bible tells us, it says, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if bow, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. I think there's something powerful there. There's something I was mentioning in the teacher's meeting yesterday. The relationship between the choice of the heart and the choice of the lips. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans chapter 10. It says that if you, be, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you'll be saved. So that because in our hearts we believe unto righteousness and in our lips we speak unto salvation. There is a relationship between those two. In that when we believe in our hearts, it's counted to us unto righteousness. When we speak with our lips, it's a salvation. Because in this moment, the children of Israel were solidifying their position and solidifying their decision that they are going to follow the Lord. In the same vein, we must also have a full cognizance of the choices that we have to make. And we must continually choose God daily in our hearts and with our lips. This means how we conduct ourselves. The fact that we are never afraid to declare the name of the Lord wherever we are. Not simply when we're in trouble, but just as our life. Because that's our salvation. That's what it means when he says that I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's what it means when he says that um, he's not ashamed of me and he who is ashamed of me. That's the difference. We can't be believers in hearts only. Just as the Israelites could not have been covenant children just in hearts only. The Bible did not tell us and the people believed in their hearts and they went their own way. No. They spoke. And we're in a generation whereby it's going to be more and more important for us to speak. Because you see, that speaking is our salvation. Whether you know it or not, it is your salvation when you speak out. Even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of people saying all sorts of things against you, your speaking is your salvation. Because then it will be noted in heaven and on earth that this person stood for Christ. If you are in a room whereby everyone is just talking anyhow, Talking anyhow, talking anyhow. 
and there's a chance for you to speak up and be like, no, you guys have it wrong. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're quiet there and you say that, well, I believe in my heart. <sighs> That's not how it works. Then you don't really believe. Most representatives of Christ, wherever we go. And just as our hearts believe, our lips must also act in accordance. We must be ready to speak about Jesus wherever we are. Because that's our salvation. Even if they persecute you, even if they make you lose your job, even if they counsel you on the social media or anything that it is that they decide to do, at least to be said that this person, indeed, he is one of those Christians. That should be our testimony. Because that's what it means for us to believe in our hearts and speak with our mouths. Because if we don't speak, can we really say we believe? No one is going to talk about something. No one is going to talk about something that you don't believe in in your front. And you won't at least mention and say, ah, I think you have something wrong here. Let's correct that notion. This should be our testimony too. The Israelites were faithful. Because we read in the book of Judges chapter 2 from verse 10 to 11, it talks about that the generation that was there followed the Lord and it said after them rose another generation which did not know the Lord. So at least we know that the Israelites followed through with their promise to serve the Lord, at least in that generation. Joshua was referred to as the servant of the Lord upon his death, which is a high distinction. Not many people are called servant of the Lord. Moses only attained it upon his death. So after Moses died, that was the first time he was called the servant of the Lord, which was interesting. And Joshua had the same distinction here. Being called the servant of the Lord. That's a distinction we should strive for because it points to the fact that this was a person who labored for me. That's what it means to serve. The Hebrew word that refers to the word serve talks about labor continuous hard labor for something. Joshua was called the servant of the Lord. He died at the age of 110, which, interestingly, was the same age that Joseph died. And considering that, you know, Joshua was from Ephraim, who came from Joseph, there's some very interesting parallels there. And he was buried in his parcel of land. The meeting ground where the Israelites met with Joshua was Shechem, which again was a very important place because that was the same place that um, Jacob had buried his idols. Same, same land. It was also the same place where Jacob's son killed all the men from Shechem. It was a very interesting place. But Joshua was called the servant of the Lord upon his death. And it is my hope and my prayer that when we leave this world, whether in death in rapture, we too will be referred to as servants of the Lord. And may God help us in Jesus' name. Shall we rise?